Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we're going to be learning a lot about science. We're gonna be learning a lot about being a female founder and a female leader that is really making incredible things happening in the world, uh, building and scaling, you name it. So I guess without further ado, Colleen Cutcliffe, welcome to the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So born and raised in Atlanta. How was life in Atlanta? <laughs> life in Atlanta is great. Um, I think when you're a child, you don't realize what heat and humidity really means. So I never felt like the weather there, as they call it, hot Atlanta was a problem. But um, I, my family all still lives in Atlanta and I go there for holidays. So I had a wonderful experience growing up there. That's amazing. I have good memories from Atlanta, you know, and also not so, not so good ones. I remember I worked for this law firm. Uh, called King and Spalding that had the headquarters there, and they were the uh, lawyers of Coca-Cola. And I made the mistake of showing up the first day of work with a Pepsi. So they told oh. me this is the first and, and last time. But but anyway, so so Atlanta, really really great place. Uh, but then you decide to go to Boston. Why? Well, actually, I decided to go to college. <laughs> so well, I mean, that's important. But why not staying there? Why 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 college in Boston? What what got you in, into going there? Yeah, I was, um, as any high schooler, trying to figure out where I wanted to go to college and did college tours in different places. And when I did the tour at Wellesley College, um, it really struck me. First of all, it's a beautiful campus, and I was visiting in the fall. And the Northeast in the fall is the most beautiful time of year to go. And I had really never seen anything like it. There's a lake on the campus, um, and you know, beautiful trees are changing colors. And I think what really struck me is that it's, it's actually quite a small school. And so you can get a lot of personal attention and um, a lot of guidance. And I, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was in high school. I wasn't one of those people that knew uh, what field I wanted to go into, what I wanted to be. And so I felt like that was a college where I could have the opportunity to explore lots of different avenues and then also get the guidance from professors that I would respect um, who could get to know me and, and help guide me to, you know, whatever I would do after I finished college. Got it. And why biochemistry? Well, uh, as I said, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I started. And Wellesley is a liberal arts college. So actually, most of my classes were liberal arts classes. And at the end of your sophomore year, you had to declare a major. And I was really struggling with this, what, what to 
what to major in. I, I really actually enjoyed all of my classes. And I remember a very specific phone call that I had with my father where I said, well, next week I have to declare a major and I have no idea what I should major in. And he said, well, what are the classes that you like the most? And I said, well, I kind of like all of them. They're, they're all really great. Um, you know, I was taking history, political science, economics, uh, and then a, a biology class. And then he said, okay, well, if you don't have a particular interest, which class is it easiest for you to get an A in? I said, oh, okay, well, that was the, that's the biology class. And he said, well, then you should major in one of those sciences because uh, if you don't have a particular interest, then do the thing that you're good at. And that was really how I ended up picking biochemistry. That's amazing. And and why in the in the world of science, you know, like, for example, like the research and, and for example, like here you did a PhD, like why why is it like so, so important? I mean, this is something that I see like scientists, you know, like PhDs and papers and research studies. I mean... What, what's about this? Yeah, um, I think, again, even when I graduated from college, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And I had uh, told my parents that I think I was going to come live at home when I finished college, which uh, my dad was fine with, but my mom was very disappointed. And she reminded me that when I left for college, that there was a one-way door, not a, not a revolving one that people can come back into. So um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I actually had a professor, this is why I went to Wellesley, and it ended up being very game-changing for my life trajectory. I had a professor call me into her office uh, in the fall of my senior year, and she asked me, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I said, I don't know yet. And she said, okay, well, have you considered going to graduate school? And I said, I have not, I don't know anything about that. And she said, okay. So she gave me a few pamphlets for some different schools um, to go get a PhD. And she said, if you're enjoying the work that you're doing, and I had done a senior honors project with her and I was enjoying the lab work, um, and you don't know what you want to do, then why don't you consider applying to graduate school? So I literally decided to apply to graduate school kind of in the 11th hour. I had to go take a standardized test. I had to go ask teachers for recommendation letters and I applied to a few different schools. And that was sort of how I ended up going to get a PhD was really this one professor who suggested it. But once I got into the PhD program, I realized that science was not what I had experienced up until that moment. Before going to my PhD program, science was a lot of textbooks, a lot of memorization, a lot of learning about how things work, and then regurgitating that back out. Um, even when you go to a liberal arts college, there's still a lot of memorization involved. But when I got to graduate school, I started to learn that actually science is a very, very creative place to be you're really trying to figure out how does the world work around me and how can I influence that world in a way that is positive. And it was during my PhD program that I really came to love science and the ability to change the world and health through science. And so um, my mentor there and all of the advisors that I had in my PhD program were important for me to understand how can you use all the knowledge that you've acquired to really impact health. And, and I could not imagine any other career that I would be in. That's amazing. And obviously, after your postdoc, which was on Northwestern, you landed in San Francisco. So what got you there? Well, uh, I knew that I wanted to be in an area that had lots of activity in the scientific arena. And there was the option of moving back to the East Coast. Uh, and the option to try California. And being somebody that grew up in Georgia, California is always sort of this mysterious place where all these magical things happen. So I decided that I should try San Francisco. So I'll take a job there. I'll live there for a couple of years, and then I'll move back to Georgia. The plan was always to move back home afterwards. 
And now 13 years later, I'm still in the Bay Area and uh, also cannot imagine living anywhere else because there's so much incredible innovation that happens out here. It's really inspirational. So I guess, uh, you know, here in, in, in your case, before you went at it as a founder, you had a, a couple of um, experiences, right? So you were with Elan Pharmaceuticals and then also with Pacific Bioscience, Biosciences. So what did you learn from both, both experiences? Because you were in both companies for three and four years, you know, so, so what was the experience like in those companies? I really learned, I think, a few key things. So the first is uh, about management and leadership. And even when I was in my PhD program, uh, I was always tasked with uh, having interns and uh, new students under me. And when I did my postdoc, I had two people reporting to me. And I think I've always enjoyed management and leadership. And what I learned in the two companies was how to um, really grow a team under you and at a, at a very fundamental level, I think I realized about myself that um, I love nurturing people and um, I care very deeply about all the people that report to me. And through that caring and helping them grow and be the best that they can be, it's really helped me define how I lead. And I, I really, it's, it's sort of a servant leadership where it's about helping the people that are on the team be the best that they can be. And that's for me um, since the beginning and even now what's propelled uh, the group and the team and the company to success. And so I think that was a very valuable lesson. There's different management and leadership styles, and I learned mine through those two companies. Um, I think the second thing I learned was uh, what kind of people I like to work with and maybe more what kind of people I don't like to work with. <laughs> and so <laughs> uh, I, I always say that there's really one type of person that I cannot work with and I will not work with, and that's passive-aggressive. It's very difficult to work with someone who disagrees with you or doesn't like the idea or the path, but then kind of refuses to say so, but then goes around and does these kind of things that chip away at the, at the plan or the ability to move forward. And I find that personality extremely harmful for uh, a team. And so um, I think that's really what I, one of the big other things that I learned through working in, in companies with a wide variety of people and personalities. And then lastly, I think it just really reinforced all the different ways that you can impact health. I mean, I grew up uh, and, and went through this, these programs that are very hardcore biochemistry and basic science research. And when I worked at Pacific Biosciences, it was the merging of software, hardware, and biology that really enabled us to build an instrument. And I learned that uh, all of these different types of engineering, when merged with science, really gives you an opportunity to uh, kind of create the next wave of health products, which will integrate big data with basic science uh, knowledge. And you were talking about leadership, you know, like I keep uh, reading, you know, everywhere about leadership and, you know, everyone has a different opinion on what leadership is. How do you define leadership and what is leadership to you, Colleen? Yeah, I, I think at a very fundamental level, leadership is inspiring people to get behind a vision and march towards that vision together. And however you as an individual are able to influence people or how you interact with people to get them to, to behave in that way, I think is the difference among different leaders. And to be a good leader, you have to really know yourself quite well and know how people respond to you. And uh, then you'll figure out exactly how do you get people to all align and go towards the same goal. I love it. And after Pacific Biosciences, I mean, you, you started your own, your own business. 
But I want to I wanna really understand, you know, for Pendulum Therapeutics, you know, like your, your company, the company that you've co-founded, like what was that process of really, you know, like coming up with the, with the idea? I mean, tell us about like how did, you, how did this idea come to you? How did you bring it to life? You know, what, were, what was that process like? Well, the idea was actually born out of uh, trying to figure out a failure. So um, at Pacific Biosciences, we built an instrument that was an incredible feat of science and technology and things that had never been done before across physics, chemistry, biology. We're very proud of the instrument that we built. And then we put it out there on the market and uh, nobody wanted to buy it. And what happens when you spend all this time building something that doesn't sell the way that you had hoped is you spend a lot of time uh, basically going to bars and talking about why nobody wants to buy the thing you made. And in these bar discussions, particularly with two people that I had worked with uh, closely at the company, um, we were trying to understand where is an application for this long read DNA sequencing that would really be a game changer And in those conversations, it became very clear that the microbiome, which was at that point a very academic um, uh, set of work, there had been no translation into any companies yet, was very early stage. But it was clear that because the microbiome is such a complex ecosystem of bacteria and viruses and fungi, that you need to be able to use DNA sequencing tools and technologies to really understand what could be a target here. And so we realized that there was an application space for using our instrument that we built in the microbiome arena. And that was the beginnings of the idea for starting a company around um, using DNA sequencing to, to identify potential microbiome interventions. And then as I was learning more about the microbiome, I realized that there was a link for me personally So um, 12 years ago, I had a a baby girl, and she was born almost eight weeks prematurely. And so my husband and I, we got to hold her for a few seconds, and then she was taken away from us to the ICN, where she spent the first four weeks of her life hooked up to tubes and monitors and getting antibiotics. And, um, you know, it was a a pretty terrible experience for first-time parents especially, Um, And as I read about the microbiome, I realized that that early disruptive start to her life um, could be an explanation for some of her current health challenges, as well as potentially setting her up for future health issues. And so it it, it dawned on me that I had an opportunity here to start a company where we could create a product that could actually help my own kid. And that was kind of knowing that we had a technological advantage and knowing that I could build something that could help millions of people, including my own family was really the impetus to start the company. Well, this is actually something that is close to my heart. They call in my, my identical twins were for 180 days in the NICU. So I know the feeling well. So, um, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing that this is what, what really, you know, was one of the drivers. So I guess uh, in this case, uh, Colleen, what happened next? So then there was a lot of fumbling. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. it, it's, it's one thing to sort of stand up and say, I want to start a company. It's an entirely another thing to actually be able to do it. And I think we uh, completely underestimated um, all the parts required to start a company. It's not just about having a great science idea or about even having a vision for how to create products, but it's about, well, for us, where the three of us that started the company are all very technical people. It was really about learning a whole new vocabulary and a whole new way of of thinking and talking to investors. So 
I mean, I spent, I, I quit my job, um, in, at the beginning of summer and I said, okay, I'm going to give myself three months to get, get money from a venture capitalist. And then we'll start this company. And I told the two co-founders, you guys can quit once there's money in the bank and then set off to, um, start to fill the gaps with two really key people. So one is Dietrich Stefan, who had started multiple companies and, um, uh, the second was Hugh Martin, who was the CEO of Pacific Biosciences, actually. So that's how we knew him. And I wanted these two um, individuals to help me think about all of those parts needed to start a company beyond just the initial scientific or technological idea. And they had both done it multiple times over. Um, one of the first lessons that I learned, though, is that if you're somebody who has started multiple companies and you go back to a VC and you say, I have an idea for a new company, the trust that they have in you already because you've demonstrated that you can do it is quite high. In other words, you can say, I have an idea for a new company, give a couple of uh, slides and walk out with, you know, people believing you and even uh, an investment. When you're a first time founder, there is a lot more that you have to do to demonstrate that your idea is, is valuable. If you're somebody who's never started a company, never demonstrated success in, in starting a company, never brought an ROI for anybody, your idea is under a lot more scrutiny and you better be prepared to go through the ringer on that. And so, um, that was the, the hardest part was learning the vocabulary and then understanding what it is that people wanted. So just to give you a very tangible example, my first slide deck was 25 slides, 24 were about science and one was okay. And then we'll build a product one day and we'll make money off of it. By the time I got my first venture investment, it was 25 slides 24 of which were about the business opportunity and the way that we were going to build the company. And one slide was the science and it had been distilled down to a cartoon. So, uh, learning how to pitch and how to fundraise and what are all the different parts of the business besides just the technology was, I think a big part of, uh, learning how to, how to get this started. And here you're obviously touching on a very important subject. And I'm sure that, you know, a lot of the people that are listening are probably now in their fundraising process or, or putting their slides together. Uh, in this case, uh, Colleen, what have you learned about storytelling? Well, I think there's there's I always there's three things I think that are really important that I learned. The first is uh, really comes back to this question about who who are you? Know who you are and know how people view you. If you are starting a company with two people uh, and all three of you have PhDs in various hardcore sciences. People are not going to question so much whether you understand science. What they're going to question is, do you know how to build a company? Do you know how to finance that company? Do you know how to uh, make sure your IP is in place? All of the other parts of the business that are important are what they're going to be questioning. So build your deck in a way that demonstrates to people that you understand all the different parts that are required for the company and know that they're not going to be asking you to do a scientific deep dive if you're a scientist. And so that was the first thing is to build the deck of the things that were actually the uncomfortable parts and the things that people would be wondering about whether we knew how to do. The second part was actually, um, <laughs> for me, elimination of the slide deck in the first presentation. I found that when I use a slide deck to present, um, people were disengaging from me and looking at the slides and then re-engaging with me and looking away from the slides. It's almost like having people focusing on two things. There's me who's telling the story and then there's the slides who are telling the story. And maybe this is just me not being good at knowing how to use slide decks properly. But I found that if I do the first meeting without a slide deck, but it's just me sitting down with, you know, a couple of people 
and telling the story of the company and telling the story of the opportunity that that could really engage people and have them believe that there's something worth their time here to follow up on. And then I can come back to a second discussion or even send out a deck which has the information that I just shared. But I found that I was able to get a lot more second meetings by not having a slide deck in the first meeting. And so I've actually not used a slide deck in a first meeting for a very, very long time. Um, and that's something that I learned about myself and my ability to, to pitch was much better without the deck. Um, and then I think the third thing is starting with a punchline. So as a scientist, oftentimes you are building a case. So you start with all of the, um, the, the, the building blocks that ultimately gets you to be able to make this proclamation of, and therefore I think that I can do this. And also as a scientist, you're constantly talking about why this building block may not be true or why this may not be, uh, actually what the observation means. And so you spend a lot of time being critical of your own thing. And in pitching, you do kind of the reverse. You have to start with the punchline because you have to give people a reason to want to understand, can you actually achieve this goal? But they have to first know that the goal is something worth listening to. So as opposed to building all the building blocks and then ending with the goal, it's better to start with the goal, the big vision of the company, the big thing that you think that you can do, and then answer people's question about how would you do that and why is that something that you think is feasible. Got it, got it. And and obviously in this case, you raised quite a bit of money. So how much have you guys raised so far? Um, we've raised uh, about $57 million for the company. Got it. And you have amazing investors. So, I mean, you have here Sequoia, Cosla, True Ventures. I mean, unbelievable. So I, I want to ask you here, like, how did you find these investors? And then also, how did you manage to get in front of them and close them? So um, the first investors that we had were True Ventures and um, Adam DeGelli in particular, I think, uh, realized that there was an opportunity to um, learn about companies and for him to get in front of companies and for companies to get in front of him by hanging out at the local incubator. So there's a QB3 incubator, um, which had a bunch of startup companies, a pretty technical mostly technical founders and all in the kind of health and science space. And Adam would just sort of uh, talk to the director pretty frequently and ask about companies that were, were, were coming up on his radar and would meet with companies. And so um, I remember that the first time that I met with Adam, he had heard about me from this director of this incubator. Um, I had another CEO that I had talked to um, uh, about the company to try to get advice from on, on building a company. Um, and, uh, his name is Mickey Cortez. He's actually also started multiple companies, currently the founder and CEO of Carius. Um, and Mickey had talked to Adam about me. And then we had also gone through this program, um, which was a little bit of a boot camp called the FAST program, which is under the California Life Science Institute. And in that boot camp, there had been a investor, uh, named Jenny Rook. And I had asked her, Hey, I'm going to meet with Adam. Could you put in a good word for me? So it was sort of funny. The first time I met Adam, we, we sat down together and he said, well, I've heard so many great things about you from so many different people that I respect. And I said, well, then I know that if I don't walk out the door here today with investment, that it's all my fault. And at the end of that first meeting, Adam said, okay, well, thank you for the pitch. I'm not going to give you an investment. <laughs> and I remember feeling so bad that I made that joke in the beginning about it's all me because definitely uh, it was all me. He didn't want to make an investment, but he gave me the advice of 
you've talked a lot about this platform and I need to know that you can hone in on a particular disease and build a product for that disease. So when you figure that out, come back and pitch to me again. And so I really took that advice to heart. It's not just about a discovery platform. It's about what's the first thing you're going to actually build. And so we went back and we really talked about that and discussed it. In the meantime, we got our first investment from the Mayo Clinic. Um, and then we discussed what would be the target first opportunity. And I, we went after, decided to go after type two diabetes. And when I came back to Adam and gave that pitch, um, I had listened to the advice that he'd given and he ended up loving that disease to go after and thinking there was an opportunity there. And they ended up making that first investment in us. Um, and I think that was a big thing, which was to have multiple people that he'd heard good things about us. And then for me to really listen to his advice on what he needed to see to make an investment and then doing it. That's amazing. So I guess, uh, you know, what, what ended up being the, the business model, you know, for the, for the people that are listening, wondering, Hey, how, 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 do, how do these guys, you know, like make money or plan to make money? What would you tell them? Well, I would say it's actually always been the same, which is that we have built this discovery platform that allows us to get high-resolution insights into the microbiome. And through those high-resolution insights, which is really a compilation of uh, lab, uh, compute, and clinical data, um, we use that in order to develop interventions. And um, we have been going after type 2 diabetes as, as the first indication. And Actually, I'm very proud to say that we've just released the world's first and only microbiome intervention for type 2 diabetes, which has been clinically shown to lower A1C and postprandial glucose response. So that's our first product. And then we have a pipeline of other products that we're working on using this same platform. And, and for example, like here, I know that um, you guys went through what I think is a super challenging thing to do, which is rebranding. Tell us about this. Yes. Well, I, this was maybe another hard lesson learned. Um, well, uh, as I said, we, we were really doing this discovery platform work and, and pretty basic science and, and clinical work. And you have three very technical co-founders that started this company. Um, and uh, when we got our positive clinical trial results back, we realized, okay, this product is ready to be commercialized. So we hired our first chief marketing officer and week one on the job, she says, oh, and by the way, you trademarked the name of the company, right? We said, mm, no, we did not. The name of the company at the time was Whole Biome, and she got a trademark attorney to come in and review the case. And this woman came in with a big stack of papers, uh, and each of those pieces of papers was a reason, was a company that was going to be a problem for us being able to trademark the name Whole Biome because Whole and Biome are two separate words that are both quite common. Biome was actually not a common word when we started the company, but apparently now it is. Um, but the more important thing was not only would it be difficult to trademark, but even if we could trademark the name of the company, we couldn't own the moat around it. And so somebody else could come out with my whole biome, for example. And so this was really the impetus. And, and I think the other thing that was clear was that because biome had become such a typical word in the microbiome space, we also were no longer differentiated. When we started whole biome, nobody even really knew what the microbiome was. I was still having to describe it to, to even investors. Um, but by the time we are ready to commercialize product this year, the microbiome has become more well-known and biome in particular is a word that's in a lot of company names. So we, it wasn't a differentiating name anymore. And the trademarking is sort of the, the litmus test for it not being a very unique name. And so we underwent a process to, to come up with a new name uh, that really represented the company and what we wanted to build. And 
pendulum is a name that I really love because it brings together the precision of science and the movement of nature. And that's really what we're trying to do with the company, you know, bring together the microbiome and these natural products with all of this hardcore science and develop new products from it. Very cool. Very cool. And today, how big is the business? How many employees do you guys have? Uh, we're, I mean, we're still a startup. We're small. We're, we're uh, a little bit less than 50 people. Um, but uh, definitely the company has gone through a transition this year in particular because we now have a, a, a marketing commercialization team, which is a different, I think, type of person uh, than we've ever had in the company before. And so it's been a transition year that's been really wonderful uh, because it's not enough to make a product. That product has to be brought to life. And uh, we're learning so much uh, about how to do that. So what has been the biggest lesson so far? Besides uh, trademarking the name of the company? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, bring the product to life. <laughs> I would say is trying to understand, um, again, it becomes a vocabulary lesson. So what is the vocabulary that you use as a scientist uh, and, and as clinicians is not the vocabulary that, that resonates necessarily with the person that you're trying to sell your product to. And understanding consumer language and what consumers respond to and what they are interested in is the most important part in being able to engage people with your product. And I think we've been, what I've been learning is what, it, what are the different vocabulary words and how do you really understand and survey people to, to get, you know, uh, um, the right language around describing your product. And um, there, we can even uh, probably at some point go back to the first iteration of our website, uh, which is very much, uh, you could only understand it if, if you were a scientist or even care about it if you're a scientist, to now, which is a site that even my parents can go look at and understand. And I think that's really been the big learning in the transition is taking the core of all of this science and medicine and translating in a way that is digestible and understandable and, and something that people really want that care about and, and want to listen to and learn more about. And, you know, this reminds me of, of one of the comments that, that you've mentioned, you know, a couple of times is that the founding team was, was quite technical. So how did you guys really, um, you know, work through the transition into, into becoming a little bit more business, business savvy individuals? Well, I think there's, there's three, three steps. The first step is acknowledging you have a problem. <laughs> so... <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Know that you have a gap in knowledge, uh, I don't know, but believe that you have that gap. Uh, there are many people who are scientific uh, in background, but they also believe that they know all this other stuff. And I think the first thing is to, to know that you don't know things. So identifying the gap. Um, then the second step is being able to identify people who uh, can fill that gap. And, and this becomes hard when it's something that you don't know. It's hard to identify an expert in something when you're you don't know anything about that field. Like if I you know, said to a regular person, like, go find the world's best physicist. How does one do that if you're not a physicist? And I think um, that's been a challenge is, is figuring out what are the proxies for identifying great people to fill those gaps. So acknowledge you have a problem, find the people to fill the gaps. And then the first, the third step is empower those people and let them really run the show. And I um, think that can be a challenge too, of letting go and really letting somebody else take over something that's very important for the company's success and truly trusting that they can do it. And that third step is kind of where we are now. That's amazing. And when it comes to health, we've been in a, in a culture or mindset or, or whatever, you know, like we, we want to call it, but really where, where health was all about fixing 
rather than preventing? How, how do you think, you know, things are shifting a bit here? Well, I think things are shifting a bit for, uh, of course, more towards preventative medicine. And I think the reason for that shift is actually because there's a shift in the concept of health ownership. So we used to live in a world in which our doctor owns our health. We go to the doctor, the doctor tells you, you know, our grandparents would go to the doctor, the doctor would tell them what's wrong with them, prescribe medicine and take care of them. And they totally trust that doctor. And I think what we've observed is that that is not really the case anymore. People are starting to take health ownership into their own hands. Because so much information is available to people, this is sort of the first time in history where a patient goes into a doctor's office and says, these are the tests that I want run, and I want you to tell me about these interventions. And I think because people are taking health ownership into their own hands, that has naturally led people to say, well, I don't actually don't want to be sick. I don't want to have to look up interventions for disease, so how do I prevent this on my own? And, and that movement of owning your own health, realizing that you don't actually want to be sick, how do I keep myself healthy, has also fueled the movement towards things like organic, natural, a little bit of this anti-drug movement. All of these things are falling in line with people uh, really caring about and embracing their own health. So let's say, for example, Colleen, if, if you were to go to sleep uh, tonight, And you were to wake up, let's say, in, in five, let's say five to seven years, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Pendulum is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, uh, let's see, five years from now, I just want to know what I have to do tomorrow. Okay, let me think. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, you know, I think really our vision is creating these natural products that are comprised of these uh bacterial strains and prebiotics and um, figuring out what can be put together to, to build efficacious products is the dream. And so that vision will be realized if we wake up five years from now and there are a family of products um, that target variety of different disease and health conditions that people are loving and actively taking um, in order to either help them fight a disease or to prevent disease onset and that we've really discovered the way to create efficacious products that consumers love and want to have in their lives. And if we can build a family of those that people are um, taking and using in their everyday lives, then I feel that's very, we, we've been able to change health. And that's, for me, success. And, and I guess, you know, obviously success as well is, is being able to balance the, um, you know, your, your duties as the founder, as the CEO with also your duties of, of spending time with, with your children, no? I mean, you were mentioning now that, that you were a mom as well. So, so I guess, especially for the parents that are listening or, or maybe like some of the female founders that, you know, are, are uh, thinking about starting their family and, and, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe they are questioning, you know, like how that future is going to be or, or how to find the balance. What kind of, uh, what kind of uh, words would you, would you share with them? I mean, is it, is it possible to have it all? Um, well, so first of all, very fundamentally, I think that it's important to put as much requirement for childcare on the father as the mother. Um, I think that men should take a, the same amount of time off for paternity leave as women take off for maternity leave. And I think that men should be held to the same standards as women in running the house. Uh, in fact, a father and a mother or, or, or two parents are, co-founders and in, in their family and so should take on 
that equal weight. So I hope this message isn't just for women, but also for anybody who has children. Um, and I, the, the most important thing I think is to live life in a way in which you have no regrets. And the way in which you do that is a series of decisions that you make every day in which you are allocating your time and your energy in order to ensure that later on you don't regret not having allocated time and energy to things that are important to you. So it starts again with you. You need to know what's important to you. What is your personal mission? What are the things that you value? And then that's your moral compass for how you spend every minute of every day. And you should know that every decision that you make about how to spend that time if you're not going back to that compass and saying, this is what's important to me, then you will end up in a place where you regret it. And so I think taking the time to figure out what matters to you and then spending your time in that way is important. And I think a big part of that is that, uh, no, you cannot have it all. You have to know what you're willing to give and what you're not willing to give on. So the time that I spend with my children is time that I'm not spending at work. I could be doing more at work for sure, but I choose to let those things go because I think that my time is better spent uh, allocating towards my family. And likewise, there are times that I could be spending with my kids and my family that I'm spending at work because I think that um, there are things that I'm letting go of. I could definitely be a better mother and a better wife, a better daughter, but uh, I let go of certain things because it's also very important to me to build a company that is changing health. So you just have to decide what, you're, what you really care about, what you will regret if you don't do, and then what you're willing to let go of. And then you cannot have it all, but you can have uh, what you decide that you want to have. And by the way, I fully agree and subscribe to your comment. I think that the work at the house needs to be equal. Uh, you know, for example, yesterday, without going too far, I slept on the floor because one of my uh, twins was uh, sick. Uh, and I told my wife, you go and sleep. You know, I, I'm, I'm taking care of this one. Uh, so I think that partnership, you know, it's, uh, it's, 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 that's what it looks like. So I agree with that. And uh, I think that, you know, like what I wanted to ask you here is uh, when, when it comes, for example, like with, because being a founder, being a CEO, uh, you know, there's a lot of stress, there's a lot of pressure, especially when you're in, when you're like leading a venture back company. And, you know, here we're talking about balance, we're talking about family. How are you able to be with your family and perhaps, you know, disconnect, maybe even if you had a, a tough day at work? Um, well, there, there's actually quite a skill in being able to compartmentalize or to be able to block out certain, uh, thoughts and, and, um, uh, worries and concerns and, uh, different people have different ways to do this, but I, um, I don't want to brag, but I've always been very good at meditation, <laughs> I would say, um, <laughs> Meditation. When I was younger, I was like, this is a totally useless skill to have. But I actually think um, it's a very useful skill because what meditation teaches you how to do is how to block out noise and to really get quiet. And, and that's actually the skill that's important for being able to walk through the front door and drop everything that you were just thinking about or worrying about or talking about and to uh, decrease that noise in order to amplify the, the, the new setting that you're in. And then likewise, to be able to uh, walk through the company's front doors and to drop and let go of whatever other things that you're worried about. And so I think the ability to um, kind of have a simple mind and not uh, kind of multitask and worry about lots of things simultaneously has been helpful for me to, to be able to um, really focus uh, in, in what I'm doing at the moment and then 
have the full energy on whatever I'm doing in that moment. Really, really interesting. Really interesting. Meditation. I mean, there's a lot of people talking about meditation, but being able to block uh, just, you know, the noise and whatever you, you had going on that day. I mean, it's it's amazing, you know, that that uh, that advice there, hey, Colleen. So, so one of the questions that I typically ask the, the guests that come on the show is, knowing what you know now, I mean, it's, uh, it's been quite a ride with Pendulum, right? I mean, you've been at it now for about five years with the business, uh, hyper growth, incredible investors as well, incredible uh, initiatives, you know, the ups and downs. So if you had the opportunity to go back in time and, and have a conversation with that, with that younger Colleen uh, that was perhaps about or thinking about starting a business, what would be that piece of uh, business advice that you would give to yourself before launching the business and why? <laughs> uh, gee, I'm not sure if I would allow my current self to go back and talk to that, Colleen. It might not start a company. <laughs> <laughs> it's like after you have children. It's best in some ways to not know what you're about to get yourself into. Um, I, I would say one of the important things uh, for any founder to realize is that um, at the heart of it, you have to finance the company in order for you to be able to get to the next step. And people get very focused on how do I finance this company? How do I get money in the door? And I would say that um, it's, this is a very hard thing to do, but a very important thing to do, which is to not take money from just anybody. It is so important to have the right partners, not only in the company, but also at, at your, the board level and at your investor level. And that means taking the time and actually being selective about who you work with. And again, this comes down to what are you trying to build? What are the kind of people that you want to work with? What are the kind of people you don't want to work with? And staying true to that, because I do hear lots of stories about founders who, yes, they get the money. But ultimately, it's a miserable relationship that they have because they gave a lot in the beginning in the type of people that they chose to work with that were not really their kind of people. And that can lead you to make decisions that you wouldn't otherwise make. That can lead you to not be as excited or, or thrilled about your company and the trajectory it's on. And so if you really want to build a company that you're excited to work at, at day after day, um, it really boils down to the people that you're working with day after day. And so... Um, one of the things that I love about every investor that we have is that they are like-minded on the kind of company we want to build and they're like-minded on how we want to do that and what we really value. And that has been huge. And, and it's easy to all be aligned when things are going well, but when things are rough, people want to know why you're behaving in certain ways, knowing that you have people that are similar to you in what they believe at the core that helps you get through those times. So it's so important to not just take money from anybody, but to be selective in that process. Absolutely. I think I always tell founders that they should do just as much due diligence on investors as, uh, you know, they're performing on them. So um, couldn't agree more, Colleen. So I guess for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, they can go to our website, uh, which is, uh, www.pendulum.co, not com. They go to pendulum.com. They're going to meet up with a European rock band. <laughs> um, and we have all the usual ways to contact us and check out what we're doing. And I hope that everybody does that. And hopefully, um, we can build products that, that help everybody improve their health. Amazing. Well, Colleen, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, 
either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.